Ephesians chapter 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. Let's pray as we move forward. Father, we pray that you would help us to navigate this text and that we would not just encounter words, but that we would encounter the word, that we would encounter you. And Father, I pray that you would encounter us. And in that meeting, I pray that we would come to better understand our place in the world, come to better understand who we are, our humanity, and come to better understand your fountain of life and the grace that you offer us, and let us reach out to that. Lord, wherever we're coming from this morning, whatever preconceptions we have about this text or about just being in church on a Sunday morning, I pray that you would move through those, through our disillusionment, through our skepticism, through our doubts. Lord, I pray that you would move into our lives and us into uh, the life of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, so certain Bible verses begin to take on a meaning, meaning that sort of floats above the text in church culture, and doesn't mean they're necessarily very well exegeted, uh, just means that they've come to take on a life of their own, and certain things that just become part of unofficial orthodoxy. And there's a part of this passage that does that, and it's, do not be yoked with unbelievers. And that takes on a certain meaning that is sort of floats above the text and excised from the context uh, in which it's found. And it means, undoubtedly, without any challenge whatsoever, that Paul is talking directly about marriage here between believers and unbelievers and concluding, don't, just say no. And in no circumstances should a church ever bless the union of a non-believer and a believer. And I want to challenge that, at least slightly, Um, not primarily the wisdom of being cautious about marriage and some of the presenting challenges that would await what we would call a a mixed marriage, but just the, a mixed marriage, but the automatic, unquestionable certainty that sections of the church often bring to texts like these. And the conventional wisdom is that Paul is giving a very clear ruling on the inviolability of mixed marriages for Christians and that the church should never in any context bless those marriage marriages. And it's not just Christians of a certain stripe who are wary of interfaith marriages. Muslims aren't permitted to marry outside of what would be considered the Abrahamic faiths, the people of the book. 
So a male Muslim can marry a Jew or a Christian, both people of the book, both Abrahamic faiths, but a Muslim woman cannot. She can only marry within, uh, the, within Islam. Surveys show that 40% of Jewish people consider it very important to only marry Jewish people. And for most Orthodox and Catholic Christians, if you're serious about your faith, it's not just married, marriage to a non-Christian that's suspect, but marriage to a non-Orthodox or a non-Roman Catholic that isn't an option in most circles. And we spend a great deal of time talking at InTown about how Christianity is not simply a box on the census form that you check. It's not a hobby. It's not simply a practice of spirituality, something that you sort of add to the mix of your life to help form out the rough rough edges. But Christianity is, in fact, a call to come and die. It's a call to come and give your life away to other people. It's a call to come and orient all of your life around the life of Jesus Christ. And let's be honest, that can be difficult if the person that you're closest to, your closest confidant, the person that you're married to, your life partner, does share your faith values. But even more difficult if they don't. Countless articles have been written, TV shows have been done, and a few books have been been written about the marriage of Mary Madeline and James Carville. This may be a little bit before some of your time, but when I was in college and involved in politics and so forth, they were the story of the week or of the year because one of them worked for George H.W. Bush as a Republican strategist, and one of them worked for Bill Clinton as a Democratic uh, strategist, and they got married, and they stayed married. And apparently happily so, and everyone was just amazed that that could happen and that they could coexist in a marriage with such diametrically different political views. And that's just politics, and maybe it says something about how we uh, sort of triage the important things of life and that politics maybe is even primary to religion. How could a Democrat and a Republican live together in holy matrimony? But when we're talking about what should be our primary commitment in life, our primary orientation, that is, as a Christian or another religion, perhaps you're here this morning, that you would marry into a relationship with someone who had values that were very different than yours, that certainly can be a challenge. But the reality is that many of the worst marriages I know are Christian marriages, ostensibly so. And I know plenty of incredibly healthy marriages, some of them in this church here at InTown, where the spouses are in different places, spiritually speaking, yet they have very rich, very vibrant, very loving marriages that are supportive, where the unbelieving spouse, in fact, supports the believing spouse's walk of faith and receives all kinds of um, help in that regard, and the believing spouse maintains seriousness about their relationship with Christ. So it's difficult to see, anecdotally at least, that a mixed marriage is intrinsically a dangerous spot. In fact, all marriages require deliberate and strenuous effort to maintain love and vibrancy. So, What is Paul up to here? 
What does this passage mean? Have you ever ever heard a pastor say from the pulpit, I don't know? (laughs) Because that's sort of what I want to say this morning, is that I'm not really sure exactly what Paul is up to, at least in this particular section. And then when you continue to read and you see these Old Testament passages that he's cobbled together, it becomes maybe even a little bit more murky in terms of what is Paul telling the Corinthians in their context, and then how are we 2,000 years later to understand it and to apply it in ours. One thing we can and we need to say is that this text isn't, in fact, about marriage, not directly. And I think it's okay to say that, well, I'm not exactly entirely 100% sure of what it is about because we can make an idol out of this idea of certainty. And it's hard to come by in this text. And what I think Paul is calling to us to in this passage, and what the Bible often does in terms of how it's calling us into a complicated life in a very difficult world, is a sort of sophisticated, improvisational wisdom. And often the church, as I said, has taken passages like this and have read them in overly realized, overly directive ways because having a clear norm, having a law to abide by is much easier than living out of wisdom. And I don't think it's directly about marriage, but it certainly applies to it. There's nothing in the surrounding chapters, if we were to get the context of chapter 6, There's nothing in chapter 5, nothing in chapter 7 that is directly about marriage that we could say, oh, I follow Paul's train of thought here, and so therefore when he talks about you shall not be yoked together with an unbeliever, he's clearly talking about marriage. Many commentators, many pastors speak as if marriage is obviously what what he's talking about. And in that case, what would happen is that the passage would really only be relevant to those who were considering marriage to an unbeliever. So, a very, very small segment of who was reading that letter at the time would actually have anything to wrestle with in this text. Everyone else could move on, and that would be true for us as well. So long as I don't marry outside the faith, if I don't marry a non-Christian, I really don't have to give much critical thought to this passage, and I can keep moving. And sometimes, therefore, our certainty about this is what it has to mean, what it obviously means, can actually dilute the meaning of the text that is meant to apply to all of us and that we're all meant to give critical thought about applying this into our lives. And so perhaps what Paul is getting us to ask is, could you, could I, could we be unequally yoked in a friendship? Could we be unequally yoked in our peer group, in the people that we choose to hang around with? Could we be unequally yoked in a work partnership? Could we be unequally yoked in a relationship with a family member? These are really important questions to ask. But if Paul is talking only about marriage here, then we're off the hook and we can move on. Now, what does this yoking have to do with anyway? Do not be unequally yoked. Well, he's mostly uh, apparently thinking of the Leviticus passage that talks about how you're not to put an, an ox and a donkey under the same yoke, because obviously the ox is stronger, bigger, it's not going to fit very well, and they're likely to walk around in circles. And So don't do that, you know, very obvious. 
But this is a fairly broad principle that Paul is giving us here, and it can and it should be applied to marriage. But Paul is talking about any relationship that jeopardizes your faith. But it's not clear, and this is where it gets even a little bit murky, it's not clear he's talking about danger inherent in any relationship with just a generic non-believer. The first letter to Corinth that he wrote that we looked at in the fall, he seems to be kind of ambivalent about mixed marriages. In 1 Corinthians 7, we've read this and we do baptism. He talks about uh, in the context of marriage where one is a Christian and the other is not, the child is actually made holy and set apart, and therefore that child should be baptized. He doesn't advise in those circumstances towards divorce for the spiritual protection of the believing spouse. And in other places in Paul's writings, even in his other writings to Corinth, he seems to imply relational entanglement with unbelievers is just inevitable and something that Christians should actually seek out in order to minister to their unbelieving neighbors and friends and and family members. It's not something to be avoided. He writes in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter, this was a letter that we don't have in existence anymore, previous to 1 Corinthians, it was Corinthians 0.5 maybe, I wrote to you in that letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning people of the world. In that case, you would have to leave the world. In other words, I didn't write to you that way, that would be an impossibility. You can't cloister yourself and everyone live in in a convent. You have to live in relational entanglement with the world. But there is someone that he advised them not to associate with. And it seems that the Corinthians misunderstood Paul and thought he was talking about just unbelievers in general, just generic people that aren't Christians. We get it, Paul, if we withdraw from the world and circle our wagons, create a holy huddle, then we will be holy. Then life will make sense and it will be easy. And Paul says, no, that's not what I meant at all. And he writes in verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. Well, that's quite different. Claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business of it is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But are you not to judge those inside? And the implied response is yes, that we can make critical judgments based upon the profession that the brothers and sisters that we are in relationship make and to determine if that is valid or not and that they can be potentially dangerous in our lives. God will judge those outside, but expel the wicked person from among you. Where's the danger? Where are Paul's sights set? It's on people inside the church that are jeopardizing marriages, that are jeopardizing the life and the unity of the church. Now, that puts this do not be yoked with unbelievers in a little bit different context. Because do you remember that throughout our study, if you've been here with us, a certain number of people have sort of lurked in the background. And these people have been trying to infiltrate the church and guide people, lead people away. 
And Paul facetiously calls them the super apostles as if they exceed him in every way. And he's telling the Corinthian church, do not listen, do not follow, reject these people, do not even eat with them because they are actually coming in and creating chaos. They're creating unbelief in the life of the the Corinthian church. These teachers were supposedly, by their own account, more holy than Paul, more skilled, more serious, more religious. And maybe it was their teaching that Paul is contradicting that led the Corinthians to believe that Paul was asking them to separate from non-Christians, to pull away from the world, and to create this sort of cloistered life where they were protected by their holy huddle. But throughout Paul's writings, he seems to have a fairly positive view of Christian engagement with the life of the world, and he does not hold out hope at all for these cloistered separatist movements as a way to true holiness. And think about Jesus. He was exactly the same. His critics railed against him because he was overly engaged relationally with whom? With unbelievers. And he was constantly speaking against the religious people who like to chart out their own holiness by their withdrawal from unbelievers, from unclean people, a sort of holiness by distance. If anyone appeared to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, it was Jesus. Now, some people have taken all of this data and all of this context and all of these different threads from the life of Jesus and Paul's writings, not just Corinth, but elsewhere, and concluded that what Paul wants the Corinthians to be concerned about aren't generic unbelievers, but false believers, hypocrites, these so-called super-apostles who are dividing the church and turning people against Paul pose a much more potent threat to the life of the church than just the few people who may at that point be considering being married to outsiders. So perhaps Paul is counseling against intermarriage, not primarily with unbelievers, but with those divisive false believers, false disciples. But notice I said perhaps. (laughs) I told you at the outset that I'm not 110% sure that that's exactly what um, Paul is talking about. And I read an academic paper that was about 50 pages and compared all the different views, and at the end of it, the writer said, well, it's probably this one. Okay, so what? How do we move through a text that has at least part of it that is not 110% clear? Well, the Bible, friends, is a grown-up book, and it's a book for adults as well as children, but it's a book that takes some time to decipher and to understand, and it's difficult sometimes, if not most of the time. And here we have a letter that's 2,000 years old, and some of the context is simply lost to us, and context is very important to understand what someone is saying, even if you're sitting in front of them. In reality, Much of the Bible is a lot less clear than we would like it to be. It isn't always explicit regarding what you should do in each and every circumstance. There's not a law for everything. And sometimes it's frustratingly unclear or nuanced. So what about this text, this 
segment or section, unequally yoked. What can we say about this as a broad principle? Well, maybe we should ask, am I unequally yoked uh, in all of our relationships? When someone comes out of a drug or alcohol addiction, they change their environment. They change their friend groups oftentimes. And it's not a rejection of those people. It's saying that the way that I've gone about life in the past doesn't work. And I've identified this new reality in my life that means that I have to change my relationships, at least partially. And I have to separate myself. I don't need to go and hang out at bars with the peer group that I used to drink with all the time. Or I don't need to be in this place where heroin is being passed around, right? And no one would fault that person for doing that because one of their primary uh, things about life right now is getting and staying sober. And so no one would feel, no one should feel rejected by that person saying, you know what, I don't think it's the best situation right now for me to engage in this friend group, this peer group anymore. Maybe we should ask this about all of our relationships. Is this relationship healthy for me? Is it life-giving? Does it stimulate spiritual richness or does it pose a threat to my spiritual flourishing? An ox yoked to a smaller animal will dictate the direction, and often the direction will be in circles. And so maybe we should ask, is this true of one of our relationships? Is this true of a potential mate? Are they leading you, dictating the direction of the relationship in ways that aren't healthy to you, that don't lead you to living as if Christ is the very center of your life? And is someone hostile or someone who is hostile to the faith could certainly do this. But maybe we don't see this or recognize this, but someone who is ostensibly a believer, but who is cynical, who is jaded, someone who works within the basic confines of what we would consider Christianity, but is divisive, is angry, is mean, they can be very harmful to Christian community and to our, the health of our Christian life. And so, though this passage isn't directly addressing and giving us a law to follow regarding marriage, it's certainly relevant to it. I think it would be difficult to establish a clear one-size-fits-all law about never marrying someone who is a Christian or not a Christian only from this passage, but let's not fool ourselves either. If you're dating, if you're considering marriage to someone this morning who doesn't share your faith, you should be cautious, and you should think about the implications. Is this person hostile to Christianity, or will they be supportive of your faith journey? Does your potential spouse recognize how primary your relationship with Christ and His church is, and will they be threatened by that, or will they be supportive of it? Many of these situations may create an unequal yoke, and we should consider that, but some may not. Secondly, Paul gives us a series of contrasts here that Eric read, and they're pretty dire. He tells us that righteousness and wickedness do not mix. Christ and Belial, which is this idea of chaos, they can't go together. They can't coexist. The temple of God and of idols are separated. And Paul is saying, friends, don't fail to recognize what has happened 
in your life if you are a Christian. Christianity isn't just a box on a census form. It's not where you just happen to be on Sunday morning. But in fact, if you've come to faith in Christ, the magnetic poles of your life have completely reoriented. Your life has been radically altered, and your life's work and worship have now been re-centered upon the gospel and upon the work of Jesus and upon His call in your life. And so, carefully, fastidiously, inspect your life and inspect your relationships and begin to carefully excise those things that in your life are creating chaos, are calling you to worship something that is other than God, that doesn't fit this new reality, that we should be ruthless about our behavioral patterns and say, that no longer fits. I have to move away from that. What he is saying is that you, you cannot be a Christian and continue to worship the other gods, the gods of money, the gods of power, the gods of violence, the gods of worldly status, the gods of pleasure. But don't fail to recognize that just by coming into the church that that's no longer a temptation, that these dangers lurk not only out there among the pagans, as it were, in Paul's nomenclature, but within the church. And it's often more dangerous in the church because we baptize these other idols as if they are Christian. We baptize power, we baptize wealth, we baptize money. And because of that, it's far more dangerous in the church. It's far more difficult to notice. It's easy to keep those gods out there and think that we are safe in our holy huddle. We need to be ruthlessly careful and cautious and inspecting of our own patterns of life and thought even and maybe especially among those who claim to be brothers and sisters, including (laughs) ourselves. So Paul here gives us some guidance, but he gives us a lot of caution. But there's also, friends, and I, I hope you'll see this, there's also gospel here. There's hope for all of us super average Christians who are trying to make our way in a very complicated world. He gives us these Old Testament quotations at the end of the passage, and they're kind of cobbled together, and that's why I said it's kind of confusing as to why Paul pulls them in. They seem maybe even a little bit uh, internally contradictory. From Leviticus, Ezekiel, 2 Samuel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, he throws together little snippets of passages, and they're a little bit confusing because they're just fragments, and you don't have the context of those passages in their original setting. And one of them, at least, gives this idea that our relationship with God is based upon our achievements and our purity. That is, our, if we guard ourselves, if we excise things from our lives that are unholy, that are dangerous, then God will come in and take up residence with us. He quotes Leviticus, touch no unclean thing, and, and the assumed thing is, then I will receive you. As you purify yourself, then I will dwell. But this is to get it exactly backwards from all of the Bible and especially from how Jesus comes and validates the Old Testament and says, here is what the Old Testament was pointing to. Leviticus even, if you think about it, was given to a people already in relationship with God. 
they are saying, God is saying to them, now this is how you should live. It's not live in this way and then I will dwell in your midst. Leviticus was given to a people who were already his chosen beloved people. They had already been brought in by grace. Well, then he quotes Ezekiel where God tells us that it was his initiative to establish relationship with Israel. And you can follow along. I will live with them and walk among them. You see, it's his choice, his initiative. And I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the determination that God is making that he is choosing to be in covenant relationship with them. And if you follow these little fragments to their context, you can see this bear out. If you read chapter 37, which is where this snippet comes from in Ezekiel, he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. Do you see there was something happening in the nation of Israel that was not appropriate? They had walked away from God. And his message to them isn't fix your life and then I will come and bring you home. It is that he goes out in the midst of their defilement, in the midst of their sin, and he gathers them together and he draws them back. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sin, and I, God says, will cleanse them. They don't cleanse themselves. I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. You see, friends, God comes to us. We don't go to Him. He's the only God who loves sinners. We don't get to Him ultimately by purifying ourselves, but that He comes and He purifies us. Jesus comes not to the previously holy to validate their behavior, to recognize them and say, good job, Pharisees, good job, Sadducees. You've lived apart from the world and now you get to inherit my kingdom. No, He comes challenging those who have a sense of their own holiness, a sense of their own purity. And he says, you've missed it. Those who live shut off from the world, he says, no, that's not the way that you achieve holiness. Jesus then goes to the outsider. He goes to the fallen. He goes to the unclean. He goes to the weak. And he says, let me be your purity. Let me be the reason that you reside with God. I will make you beloved. And he goes and gathers them. And he comes and he gathers us, not because of our intrinsic holiness or purity, but He comes and He makes us pure. We don't become clean by our own efforts, and it's only those who realize that who are in the position to be made clean. It's only those who say, yes, I have a gap, I have a need, I have a shortcoming, I have sin in my life, and I need to be cleansed from it. God, would you do that? I have failed in my own efforts. And our safety, friends, is not ultimately in carving out for ourselves places of comfort and places of security, but because God comes in and gathers us and that He dwells in our midst, and that is what makes you safe. Yes, be wise. Yes, be good stewards of your relationships and, and think with caution about all of your areas of life. Is this conducive to my life with Christ? 
and perhaps I need to excise it from my life. But it is not ultimately that that brings you to Him. He comes to you and He comes to me. And let's receive Him in these elements and as we confess our faith. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would walk with wisdom, that we would look at what is written as clear laws and abide by them. But as we wrestle with texts that are difficult, would you give us wisdom? And would you remind us that we live in community for a reason, that as we bump up against each other's lives, that it helps us to determine how to follow you more fully, that we get insights from how other people read the text. And I pray that that would become real for us. And I pray that we would walk out of here with uh, an energy to pursue you and that you would let make life potent, make our uh, heart potent with the energy of the gospel as we move forward into this week. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.